Koi Koi, welcome everyone to podcast number 83. This is our second podcast and we want to thank you, everyone, who supported us with our first podcast. Your insights and feedback were very important to us. This podcast, which is being broadcasted on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. Welcome, everyone. We would like to open this podcast with an original song by Doreen Stevens. And Doreen will be joined by the Thunderbird Sisters Circle. And let's have a listen to Swaying in the Cedar Bay. Thank you, Doreen, for that beautiful piece of music. You will hear from co-host Rob Snicker, The Off-White Project, a.k.a. The Unknown Settler, and Rob will be bringing The Settler's Corner. And Patsy Griffin uh, is with us from uh, the Thunderbird Sisters Collective. For those listening for the first time, you will uh, find our previous podcast on your podcast platforms. Podcast number 83 is based on a call to action. Number 83 of the TRC Truth and Reconciliation Recommendations, which state, We call upon the Canada Council for the Arts to establish as a funding priority a strategy for Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists to undertake collaborative projects and produce works that contribute to the reconciliation process. This podcast is an example of such a collaboration. Hello, I'm Patsy Griffin, and welcome back to the Four Directions Poetry Corner. Before we get to my special guest today, I'd like to read you one of my poems. This one is called Fringedians. Fringedians, welcome to the nation of Fringedians. We are the fringe dwellers dreamers and doers, believers and thinkers, abandoned long ago. We have no homeland. We have no res. We are not Indian actors. We follow no script. We look to the sky. We follow the eagle and condor. Let nature be our guide. Welcome to the nation of Fringedians. We are the fringe dwellers, 
don't always know protocol, don't always know the way, guided by our ancestors and the heartbeat of the drum. We're coming to the circle to create a new wampum. We follow the eagle and condor, let nature be our guide. Welcome to the nation of Fringedians. We are the fringe dwellers, warriors of the rainbow, coming out of the shadows, coming out of the fog, coming from the four directions, coming to light the sacred eight fire, coming to heal the land. And now I'd like to welcome David Grew to the podcast. David is originally from the Serpent River First Nation community. He is proud of his Indigenous roots, Ojibwe and French-Canadian. He now calls Ottawa his home. He has written several poetry books, and we were very lucky to catch up with him at his home on a beautiful summer day a few weeks ago for a very special reading for this podcast. Enjoy. Protest poem. I protest the death of Dudley George. I protest the bulldozing of my grandmother's home. I protest the wrongful conviction of Leonard Peltier. I protest the discovery of America in Columbus Day. I protest the Aboriginal suicide epidemic. I protest clear-cut logging and the destruction of the earth. I protest the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, sections 1 through 35. I protest the turning away of the St. Louis and the Kamigadu Maru and the murder of coal miners by the RCMP in Esteban. I protest the power of the Pope and the ownership of property and all of John Wayne's movies. I protest the internment of the Japanese, the Ukrainians, the Germans and Italians, and the deportations of labor organizers. I protest the idea that the CPR is great, the fraud that is Confederation, and the power of the PMO. I protest that surfacing is great literature and all sensitive men. I protest the laws against assisted suicide, the idea that capitalists create wealth and whatever happens on the stock market. And I protest the price of gas, the price of bread, and whatever price paid for in blood. I protest the rapture, original sin, heaven will weep for hell, transubstantiation. I protest the padlock law, and all the songs of Randy Bachman. I protest any, anything said by Don Cherry or Kevin O'Leary. Anyone who claims the truth does not know it. I protest the adversarial legal system, the devil, the Lord, and that vengeance is his. I protest that I can make you do anything, say anything, feel anything. I protest that I'm on my hands and knees now. I protest my brokenness and your brokenness too. I protest this body that grows old, this memory that fades, this heart that keeps breaking, and that youth is wasted on the young. I am on my belly now. I protest death, and I protest wherever we go when we die. And I protest the fading of the light, the fading of the light. I protest the fading of the light. Residential School Archaeology. Where are the bodies, you ask me? I do not know. They are here behind the buildings, out in the fields where the children used to work. There the ground is not empty. It wants to puke out our children. 
The bodies are there beside baptisms and last rites, abortions with small folded hands in the earth, eyes closed. Peace be with you. God forgives some that do not deserve it. The, the poem about uh, again being kicked off the land in one form or another. Serpent, we tore down your house, Grandma. All that is left is a lonely lump of two-by-fours and tar paper beside the railroad tracks. They tore down old Uncle Bill's house, and mine too, carried the remains off to the dump where the OPP threw my dog. Sam, he was wrapped in the garbage bag and after they shot him. The all-sulfuric acid plant is gone, but the poison remains licking on the shore running its long, dead fingers over the reserve. In the river, there's uranium, cadmium, radon, sulfuric acid. It curls around the reserve like a serpent, coiling, striking at both sides. There's a restaurant there now, and a powwow for the white people to be entertained. They come and they go, their bellies carrying home the serpent's eggs. Uranium mine, town boom. We were the boom, boom town people, listening for the blast the miners made. These rocks and low dust, dust in our lungs, coughing up gloom from down below, almost a mile. Dawn or dusk, ruts are way in these bones. We spat in the de devil's furnace, heaven had no room. Here we mine the end of the world. Here we fed our children, Armageddon. Built our houses with the crumbled granite, watered the earth with radon, and danced to our graves with our daughters. Thank you, David, for those amazing poems. And now we're going to take it over to Carm uh, with one of her original songs. It's called Sisters in Spirit. Enjoy. song 
Thank you, Kerm. I love that song. And now we're going to bring back Albert Dumont, and he's going to tell a story about not overreacting. The sorcerer had great power, and he, uh, he could conjure up imagery. He could make people believe that they were seeing birds as big as that tree. The birds weren't really there, but his power was to make people believe that they were seeing these things. And because he could do it and nobody else could, he was respected far and wide. And because he was so respected, he, he thought he was better than anybody else. That he was, he was special. And he carried himself that way. And one of the things that he liked to do every day was to uh, have a little sleep for a while in the sunlight. And one day when he did that, he overslept. And whenever he woke up, he found that he had a really bad sunburn. His back was red and blistered. And he was very angry at the sun. Like he says, how dare the sun do that to me? So he called his family around him and he showed his back to his family. He said, look at what the sun did to me. I'm going to kill the sun. 
for what the son did to me. And he said, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go east. I'm going to go to the furthest point east. And when the sun rises, I will attack it and I will kill it. And I won't come back until I've got my revenge. But that's what he did. The next morning, he started going east. And, and he knew that the sun wasn't just going to let him kill him. He knew that the sun would defend itself. And he knew he had to be in fighting mode. He had to be in killing mode. So he decided to kill everything he came across as he came as he walked eastward. If he, if he came across a bird, he killed it. If he came across an animal, he killed it. If he came across a human being, he killed the human being. That's how desperate he was to, to win this, this fight he was going to have with the sun. And finally, when he got to the furthest point east, he said to himself, if the sun defends itself, it's going to be with fire. So he looked around and he saw a type of tree that didn't burn very well. And he said, there's going to be a fire here. I'll go to that tree and I'll be saved. So he waited for the, for the, all night long. He patiently waited all night. And the next morning when the sun started to rise, he had a, a special rock in his bundle that he used for, cer for his ceremonies, for his rituals. And he took that rock and he took careful aim at the sun and he threw the rock and it hit the sun and where the sun was hit it sparks of it flew all over and landed on the planet and where they were on the planet great fires erupted so there was a fire where he was and he ran to that tree where he thought he was going to be safe but he wasn't safe there the fire was so enormous that that he caught on fire and the story said that that he burned so much that there came a point where his forearms fell off his body and his legs fell off and he was laying there burning and as he was burning he was shrinking you know just like when you cook overcook a piece of meat it shrinks but he was shrinking and the story said that he started to cry and it's not because he was in pain that he was crying he was crying because he realized at that point that everything he loved was burning. His wife was burning. His children were burning. Everything of his homeland that he loved so much was burning. And it was all because of him. He was the one who threw the rock at the sun and made this catastrophe happen. And he was regretting his actions. And the story said that he shed so many tears that it, and in each tear there were seeds and everything grew up again. And him, he became the world's first rabbit because he had shrunk the size of a rabbit at that time. So the, and now this, this man from the Smithsonian Institute back in the 1800s, when he, when he first heard that story, he said, that's how, he said, these, these people actually believe that that's how the rabbit began. And he wrote a report on that. In, in, for, for, he was from Harvard, and, and he wrote this for, for the Smithsonian about storytelling, indigenous storytelling. He said, these people actually believe that that's how the rabbit began. And that is end of story, right? <laughs> he, like, he missed the whole point yes, that it. the story was trying to make. Yeah. And just, like, whenever I tell that story to children, I, I tell them, you know, Chiswick, that, that, that sorcerer, 
caught a sunbird. And he wanted to kill the sun because of it. I said he overreacted. And the story is, is told to teach human beings that whenever you overreact, nothing good comes out of it. Things go from bad to worse in no time flat whenever you overreact. And I said to the one time I told that story to some 10 year olds, I said, has anybody in this room ever overreacted? And nobody put up their hand. I said, come on, somebody must have overreacted. And finally, this 10-year-old boy put up his hand and he said, well, I did when I was five. I said, not since, huh? He goes, no. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> I said, so don't overreact. Is that good's going to come up and you're going to end up like that sorcerer. Yeah. So that story is thousands of years old because it, it, it was first told to, the, to that Harvard professor in probably the mid-1800s. But it was already a story that had been serving the, the people for many generations because overreacting is not good. Thank you, Albert. And now we're sending you over to Settler's Corner with Rob Snicker. Welcome to Settler's Corner. I'm Rob Snicker, a.k.a. The Unknown Settler. Here in the corner, we meet with non-Indigenous artists to drop the puck on issues of colonial thinking and privilege. Today we're speaking with Charles C. Smith. He's a poet, a playwright, and an essayist. He's also artistic director of the Wind in the Leaves Collective and the Executive Director of Cultural Pluralism in the Arts Movement, Ontario. And with that, I welcome Charles C. Smith. Hi, Charles. Robert, you, how are you? I'm pretty good. And how are you, sir? I'm doing rather well. Well, could you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background and heritage? Sure. I'm from New York originally. been living in um, Thai, Toronto since about 1980. And my passion in the arts comes from my work out of New York, my association as a young man with the uh, Black Arts Movement. Um, so my poetry and my, my sort of performing arts comes out of those experiences, um, as well as uh, my activism, which, infu which is infused in my work, to discovering what it meant to be Black in America, and also to discovering um, jazz and blues uh, as major forms of Black music expression, uh, which really has informed my sense of creativity, appreciation for improvisation, and for ancestral roots. Tell us a bit about your art and the collaborations that you've yeah. worked on. Um, so let's start with my poetry. Um, you know, it really helps me, obviously, to have the time to do the research that I want to do and need to do to do and that's largely because um, a lot of my poetry focuses on historical issues, whether it's about people or artists, um, and then also on, um, you know, kind of time, social movements, etc. The collaborations also fit in predominantly through my work with the Wind and the Leaves Collective. And there I kind of take my poetry, uh, combined with music that influences me, and work with dancers predominantly 
And so that becomes an interesting aspect because who gets involved in the work? Uh, people come from diverse backgrounds, indigenous, black, uh, queer, you know, Jewish, white, uh, you name it, South Asian. I mean, we have a wonderful a group of people who come together and really engage very much with the work. And also the group is intergenerational. We've got, you know, performers who are maybe 21, 22, up to performers who are in their 60s. And that really gives a really good introduction to the difference over time, to how we who are a bit older, let's say, um, can pass on knowledge or whatever to younger ones, but also learn from them because they grew up in a very different world than we do. Thank you for that, Charles. Now, this segment of podcast number 83 is called Settler's Corner. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, you have a distinction to make in that regard. Yeah, yeah. as, as a person of African descent, as someone who's Black, uh, you know, my choice here, being here, is not necessarily a choice. I, I, you know, my ancestors did not come as refugees. They did not come as immigrants. They came shackled and chained to the bottom of boats. So, you know, it's a really tricky situation because I feel that being black in North America almost means we have no home. We're on indigenous land. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, our relationships are predominantly with white institutions, European uh, institutions, Canadian institutions, etc. So on one hand, I have to acknowledge I have certain privileges. You know, I have a house, I have a car. My mortgage is not with indigenous people, it's with the, uh, it's with the bank. And you know, my car payments do not go to an indigenous car dealer. So all these things, you know, really are part of settler mentality and part of settler experience. However, my presence here is dramatically different than others who came as refugees, who came as immigrants. Um, There was no choice given. And that has to be acknowledged because, you know, in many ways, um, when I think of it, I I can't say where my ancestors came from. I can't say what my original language was. I have an idea of the gods and goddesses, if you want to call it, the Orishas, but it's not the kind of um, spiritual practice I grew up with as a Catholic, uh, and so on. So much was taken from me and my uh, ancestors um, that I think we have to talk about blackness as a very different space when it comes to settler identity and settler mentality. No, I totally acknowledge that. And I, I, I'm glad that you made that so clear. The This segment was was titled Settler's Corner to allow non-Indigenous artists to collaborate, but we certainly wanted to highlight the distinction of African-American and African-Canadian and Black culture, albeit uh, non-monolithic, and to fit that in. So you explain that quite clearly. So I'd like to ask you, with your experience, how do you believe that such collaborations can assist the process of reconciliation? I think they can greatly. The arts provides an incredible forum for exchange of ideas, for exploration of aesthetic practices, for uh, sharing of stories. And uh, one of the things I find when I do work um, uh, with Indigenous artists, or we have Indigenous artists on our panels at Sapamo, is the appreciation for the way in which 
um, the diversity of practices within indigenous communities, the, the stories that we tell, the process of creation based on, in some many cases, storytelling, the, the relationship with the world, with everything, um, nature, stones, water, as part of the earth we need to take care of. And what does that mean and for me in terms of how we approach working with each other and, and building relationships that can be respectful, that can be understanding. So here I would think almost in the two-row wampum, you know, an indigenous practice where there are two sides, right? And, you know, coexistence is very possible with understanding and saying, hey, that's a different way of life. It's a beautiful way of life for people who live it as, uh, you know, we have ours. And what are the possibilities for mixing and sharing that are uh, authentic, uh, not based upon power uh, or any sense of dominance? And so I think the arts provide a very healthy way of doing that because as artists, we're naturally exploring. We're naturally trying to add things to our repertoire. And here, obviously, with indigenous people, we have to be careful we don't get into cultural appropriation. That would not be what we want, um, but that we could understand why we don't want to do that and what it would mean. What does that mean, actually? And then how do we take guidance uh, when we're working with indigenous artists, either in you know forum or in a, a rehearsal hall? Uh, whatever that might be. So for me, this is really a part of the, you know, the major part of Canada coming to recognize itself as a nation through the arts has to be with a very sound and uh, profound relationship with indigenous artists and to appreciate their art as they create it in their own right and to take whatever opportunities we can have to work with them uh, to share our expression. Well, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. It, it, your answer brings some other ideas to my mind in the mm -hmm. sense of uh, the idea of collaborating in itself can be challenging for artists, visual artists in particular, who tend to work, uh, you know, in solo environments and isolation. Yeah. But this actual opportunity to make human contacts and social contacts with other people that some let's say non-Indigenous artists, maybe have no experience at it all, uh, is so incredibly rich and valuable, but also the opportunities are rare outside of the art world. The art world creates an intimate relationship space, I think, but it does, it takes a lot of self-reflection and listening skills and some of the skills that uh, Indigenous protocols stress in their learning and healing circles that I think uh, could open up many artists to a new way of seeing yes. and a new level of creativity. Yes. And it feels good. I'm just experiencing some yeah, of these yeah. new relationships myself. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's very true. I mean, the sad part is, um, you know, the Western world has such a strong overriding value around individualism and ownership. Um, and, and that seems to me, in my understanding, not consistent uh, with what indigenous values are, um, which is one of, you know, community and, you know, shared uh, yes. resources. So that's amazing. And the arts world, because of the systems, are very much in the colonial mentality. You compete for grants, you compete for space, you compete for artists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that somehow we've got to figure out how to unra unravel that, how to um, unpack that 
um, to have um, you know better synergies, uh, better understandings, better relationships that aren't just pressed by um, ego or dollars. Indeed, I, I agree. Ego and commodity and how we're taught these things. And also, I'm reminded when you speak, uh, you mentioned story a number of times in one of your recent online events, Jesse mm -hmm. Wente made that a key point that art is storytelling. And, yes. and there's so many ways now to tell stories and, uh, and to listen to stories. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Well, I've been talking a little bit too much, so I'm oh, going yeah. to move. I want to move on to a segment which is, sure. which is a little risky, or risque. Uh -huh. uh, it's what it's what we like to call in the settlers' corner the two cheeky questions. Mm -hmm. They're meant to be somewhat satirical, but very open-ended. Sure. Uh, the questions are: How white do you think you are? And how white do you think? Yeah, those are very interesting questions. How white do I think I am? I, I don't think of myself as being white at all. Um, you know, part is uh, my skin color. Um, and growing up uh, in uh, New York, uh, predominantly in a white neighborhood, it was pretty clear to me um, um, that I, I was not white. Uh, even though I um, did my best to attempt to be part of um, that community uh, as much as I possibly could. It just wasn't going to happen. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a day I can't, I, I can't even begin to think if I ever thought I was white, to be honest. Um, and I know as a child, it was pretty painful, that divide. So, for example, when I was hanging with my white friends, which were the friends I had because that's the neighborhood, if other black people would walk through whom they did not know, they would refer to them as the N-word. And then they would turn to me and say, oh, we mean them, not you. Like I was something special. But I knew I was them. The only difference was they knew me. That was it. Um, and I can't even begin to count how many times I heard that expression as a kid. You know? So it was pretty clear to me that they were talking about me. And that made it really clear to me that I am not white, um, that I am black. And as I grew, that became something I moved toward uh, because it, to me, um, you know, when one was the rejection and then the other was um, my own rejection of that because I just did not like the values. I did not like, I mean, you can talk, you can call people you don't know names. I mean, like derogatory names that just because of the color of their skin, just seemed to be absolutely insane. And yet that's what was happening. Or, you know, the, you know, the battles around, uh, you know, who created blues, who created jazz, who created rock and roll. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Time, time, to, time to just move on, yeah. you know, and some of that impacted my personal life as well. Um, in my high school, again, I was only black there. And uh, in basketball, even my accomplishments on the court were not credited by my white teammates. Right? So I was like, oh, give me, a, you know, so when I left that high school, it was like, farewell, see ya on my own. I'm going to figure this out some other way because this is just not going to, this is killing me basically. It was killing me and I just could not continue. Um, so I don't think of my, I don't think white, I, I don't 
think of myself as white at all, never have, uh, and I highly doubt I ever will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't blame you. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. But you, you must feel pressure in some institutions in our, in our white society, our white dominant society, in, in terms oh, of yeah. uh, in academia oh. and, and institutional arts organizations and... Yep all the time you know it's um you know i've had a very interesting um career if you want to call it that where you know as my kids were growing up i worked in bureaucracy i rose to an executive position you could find me easily in a board meeting because i'd be the only black there and you know it was this burden on two parts one the way some of these people spoke about black communities particularly around issues like policing or low income or the use of patois or so on. We can go on with the whole list. Uh, and so of course having to really both defend and try to educate. Um, and the other aspect around that is, um, you know, how do you, how, I mean, many times just dealing with my anger. You, know, you sit in those meetings and you hear people all day long and you just want to explode um, and often and, and I'm, I did a number of times explode uh, it, it was the only way to um, say I'm not going to swallow this crap um, you know this is how it makes me feel so uh, you know those those and, and it's still today I mean with Sapamo for example you know with the way Canada Council is funding indigenous artists and artists of color we wrote an article, a piece called Achieving Equity or Waiting for Godot. And <laughs> as far as we feel, we're waiting for Godot. I mean, these little dollars they throw out and you have, you know, Canada Council say equity is in its DNA. And I say, show me the proof. Yeah. Show me the money. I mean, tell me where you see that we've achieved equality because I'm not seeing it. If indigenous people are making $12,000 a year less than white people, that's not equity. That's not reconciliation. That's continued um, oppression. Yeah, Sorry, I, there's nothing else to call it. I agree. I, I mean, you, you could see it's so systemic. It's people talk about systemic barriers as being invisible sometimes. But I'm living just across the river from Ottawa here in rural mm. Gatineau. So I, I've been in that big Canada Council building a couple of times and it, the architecture and the layout is, itself is very intimidating yeah. and hierarchical. And yeah, I guess if they wanted equity, we'd, we'd see it in the boardrooms and on the juries. Yes, we would. Yes, we would. And one thing I could add to that in terms of the, um, the aspects of, uh, you know, these institutions is when I say stuff like this, I get ready for backlash, right? So, you know, there's a double issue. One is, Oh, good God, I got to muster up the energy to say it, knowing that when I say it, there could be consequences. We had a meeting a few years ago with the major funder, not Canada Council, I'm not going to name the funder, uh, which had promised us funding, promised us, and then decided, nope, not going to do it. And so I just let the funder have it. We didn't get funded for three years from that organization. Right? So this is the problem. This is the issue. You can't, you just speak truth to power. You've got to be ready to accept backlash. 
because it will come, especially on sensitive issues like this, where people feel, oh my God, I'm a racist. Well, I'm not saying you personally are, but the outcomes of your behavior are in fact racist. They lead to racial differentiation, continue racial, uh, racial uh, subordination. And of course, then voices like mine come out to tell you what you're doing. And then you kind of, let's shut that down as best we possibly can. Sure, and I could see that financial white lash come in your direction yep. uh, at the drop of a hat. Yeah, uh, and it oh. comes to board meetings as well, where, you know, who the hell, I mean, I had, a, I had to like, say to a chair of a board, um, you don't know who I am, do you? And he said, what do you mean? I said, you don't know that I've authored 14 books. You don't know the titles of my books. If you knew them, then you would not challenge me on issues of racism. <laughs> <laughs> but here you are, as if you're the expert, and I'm just somebody who happens to be the color of the skin. I said, so in essence, you treated me like I'm the N-word. I hear you. And, and then the flip side of that that, I, that I'm concerned about is if I see yet again another multicultural policy or approach that tokenizes people yeah. and puts them in a limited financial or funding situation, then I, it's just a, another replication of systemic barriers. Agreed. But this is one of the areas where, you know, looking at uh, Canada Council, Ontario Watts Council, Toronto Watts Council, none of them talk about equality of outcomes. To them, it's equality of access. And if two things, white and non-white or black, indigenous, you know, come out the same, then of course you give it to the you know the uh, racialized or indigenous applicant but it doesn't go to what are the criteria upon which these assessments are made who's on the jury yes. do you have a full understanding of the artistic practice that has walked into your door so when do we get there and also what are the strategies that are around building up organizations we've had you know since the massey report in the 50s canada council in the late 50s various other We've had organizations that have had 60 years of building up their practice, their membership, their audiences, their relationship with funders, their relationship with politicians. And then you say, and we've been blocked from that for a long time. Now we get in the door and you say, well, okay, you got to compete with them. And my answer is give us the accumulation of 60 years of support that they got. And then ask me to compete with them. I hear you. And one of your speakers at, at your online event too talked about, well, how about a parallel structure inside yep. the Canada Council? If you have one hierarchical pyramid here of dominant culture, let's set up another one right beside it and fund it equally. And let's see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. If artists are actually working together, that we hope that that can generate further and further collaborations and, and some experiential learning. I guess, in my mind, that's the best way I can go about yep. doing something. I mean, you know, the challenge with artists and, you know, with the greatest respect, I mean, you know, I know for myself, with my own work, if I go to work with my group, I, I, I have the poetry, I bring them the poetry, I bring the music mostly, unless I have the funds and we can bring in live musicians and they can create. And then I kind of turn over um, and I kind of, you know, I have some ideas around what I'd like to see, but, you know, where's the room for them to contribute? Where is the room for, say, for them to create a sense of ownership 
over the work um, as a, um, uh, how do you say, a co-creator, if you want to call it that. And then how do they then relate with each other? How do we take the time in a rehearsal process? Okay, we need to stop here and talk. How are you feeling? How do we go around in a circle so everyone's heard, right? Everyone has heard. How are you feeling on this? Because we want to make sure we all get there together. Uh, and to me, the chemistry that comes about through that process is amazing. And to me, it adds to the, to the quality of the performance because people trust each other more. They have a better understanding of each other. They know why they're holding space with another uh, and so on. Well, thank you. That was Charles C. Smith. Thank you very much for your reflections, Charles. That buzzer indicates the end of this episode of Settler's Corner. Here at Settler's Corner, we offer settler conversion therapy, decolonizing one settler at a time. And now a short poem titled Negative Space. That is a term from visual arts referring to the space between prominent figures, a space often unseen until sought out consciously. Negative space. Is white the negative space of race? Not that race exists, but you know what I mean. It's there, in the heart and in the mind. Funny how things which are there can't be seen, and others not there are so visible. Hard to see one's own privilege. Hard to see the non-science of race. Hard to see the roundness of the earth. Hard to see its gravity. What a force it still is. Can white even be a negative in our language? Why not? It's just positive by convention and not a convention held by all. What color is space anyway, if we talk of a place filled with darkness and blinding light can obscure as much as shadow? Just look into the cop's flashlight and try to see his face. Thanks for dropping into the corner. Next time we'll have a discussion with Petra Halkis, artist, curator, researcher, and writer. Hey everyone, we want to introduce you to a project that both myself and Patsy Griffin are a part of, and uh, I think it's important that we share this collaborative effort that has been going on uh, in Ottawa now. Uh, before COVID, uh, a group of us came together and we're known as the No Borders Community Voices. Um, we wanted to uh, work, well we did, we are working with uh, Beverly uh, McIver and um, and Beverly presented and Beverly's a composer, Anishinaabe composer, uh, here in Ottawa. I think uh, this particular um, piece of uh, work that we've been uh, uh, singing together as a singing group um, has had some profound effects on people and uh, who participated up to this point, and certainly. Um, uh, there's much more to come. So I just, we both thought that this would be a great opportunity to give an example of what a collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous sound like. And before we do that, Patsy, maybe you can just introduce what the No Borders Community Voices kind of, what was it about No Borders that brought you in? Because you're also a part of uh, the project. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I think, Carm, when you first told me about the project, I was super interested. Um, I really had no experience singing in a choir, but I like to sing. <laughs> so, uh, and it just was welcoming to everyone. Any background, all ages, sex, gender identities, ethnicities, abilities, incomes, nationhood and nationalities, all were welcome to the No Borders Community Voices Choir. So the No Borders Community Voices follows along a similar pattern to the No Borders uh, Art Festival, which both you and I are uh, coordinators of. And Beverly had come uh, and participated um, the year before last, well, and last year online. We ran the No Borders Art Festival. And Beverly came and, and uh, asked if we'd be interested in 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 starting this this um, um, this choir because she was aware also that you know I I was a part of and and uh, we've all been uh, connected somehow in community through music so um. yeah and another thing was that I got to sing in the language in Anishinaabe Moan uh, I've taken a few lessons uh, in the past few years and. It was great. It was just great to sing in the language. Right. So, and, and again, you know, uh, Beverly um, herself is Anishinaabe. And um, I think a Lake... Uh, Lake Seul, Seul First Seul, Nation. Right, yeah, right. yeah. So um, it's kind of neat that you're able to, because I know you've been doing language training, right, with uh, uh, Louise, Louise Garreau. Yeah. And... Um, and so it's kind of a nice combination to be able to use your language as well as um, sing the parts exactly. that uh, Beverly has put into this extraordinary piece, which is uh, called Before We Went Away. And uh, Before We Went Away, really, the, the composition is based on, on Beverly's um, uh, and Melody's recordings of elders um, and... Um, you know, who, who shared their stories about uh, residential schools and before residential schools, which this piece that we're going to play for you this evening is a little taste of uh, what um, is in the makings and what will be probably um, with, with great hope uh, in the next upcoming months. Uh, after COVID, uh, when we're able to all meet up again, because right now we're doing Zoom, like so many other groups, and uh, in the hopes that uh, we'll be able to present and perform these extraordinary compositions by these two people. And and uh, we're just honored to be a part of this project. I mean, I think we both um, really, from everything we've heard and seen, um, get a lot from participating and being a part of such a great project uh, and certainly we see it along the lines of reconciliation and being able to have indigenous voices uh, um, recognized and present through such a great group of people that we've come together with you know so let's play uh, the track uh, before we went away and uh, enjoy Before we went away, it was one. 
This brings us to the end of podcast number 83 for this week. We have a few people to thank. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Patsy Griffin and Rob Snicker. We want to thank the Canada Council for the Arts and CBC Radio. In um, first digital um, original podcast, we'd like to thank our guests, David Grew and Charles Smith and Beverly McIver before we went away, the No Borders Community Voices uh, for sharing with us, G. McWedge, and the Elizabeth Riley Band and Shaolin De Quincey on Sisters in Spirit. Thank you all for joining us today, and um, please uh, send us your comments, uh, podcast83 at hotmail.com.